morning. It's good to see you. I am honored and privileged to share with you this morning. Derek asked me two days ago, he said, uh, yeah, I'm not feeling good. How gifted are you at preparing a word in 48 hours? And I was like, I don't think that that's one of my gifts. Um, and I'm certainly not gifted in parsing it down to 30 minutes in 48 hours. So I'm going to do my best. So give me grace if it's 35, okay? All right, so Father, we just thank you for who you are, what you're doing in our lives. We pray for the spirit of wisdom and revelation to hit this room. Give me the grace to speak your word. Give, give them the grace to hear it. Give all of us the grace to obey it, to do it, and to be empowered by it this week. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So I titled this, Being Strengthened in Our Inner Man, found in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16. Uh, the main point of this teaching is going to be to discover how the Spirit strengthens us, uh, to walk in boldness, confidence, power, we can call that the anointing, in our assignment in Christ. You guys excited? I always like just how clearly Paul and Jesus think. They just think so clearly, and if we just take what they say, we'll find that we'll receive that power on our, on our inner man if we take it and apply it. So I think that this is, I think it's the 11th week that we've been on Ephesians. So three weeks ago, we had Steve talk about uh, walking worthy of our calling. You guys remember that? Two weeks ago, we had Derek. Uh, he kind of he went through Acts 19 and Revelation chapter 2, and he pulled the information uh, from Ephesians, from the, the, the church in Ephesus, in order to talk about what it meant to return back to first work. So I'm picking up uh, in the middle of a transition in the book uh, of Ephesians. So Ephesians, it places a heavy emphasis on our identity as a new creation in Christ. So just to give a little bit of review where we're going, we're going to review Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16 through 19. Then we're going to define what the Lord wants to strengthen in us because he wants to strengthen something specific. And the more specific we get when we ask, the more specific the Holy Spirit is when he responds. So when we ask the Holy Spirit for something, be specific. He loves that clarity, and he, he meets us there in that space. Okay, then we're going to attach the eight Beatitudes to what it is that he's going to strengthen in us, uh, found in the Sermon on the Mount. So we're going to pray, and then at the end, we're going to do an activation. We're going to pray that the Lord strengthens us in the character and the nature that Jesus is inviting us to in the eight Beatitudes. Sound good? You guys excited? All right, so just a quick review. Ephesians chapters 1 through 3. It's really clear. It's, it's obvious that Paul did this on purpose. Uh, chapters 1 through 3, it identifies or it emphasizes our identity in Christ. So what is new in us, okay? Uh, chapters 4 through 6 is going to emphasize our responsibilities. And this is common uh, within, within the Bible. You're going to get doctrine, the new reality of the Spirit living in us, then deeds. What is our responsibility and how do we move forward practically? Okay, so this is exact. The a book of Ephesians is split in half like this on purpose. Um, all right, you can see the same thing, just to, just to show that the the Bible likes to use that, or the authors and Jesus Himself like to use that formula. We have to establish identity, because otherwise, what we end up is we're just following the rules, right? And if we end up just reading Ephesians four through six without reading one through three. We, we, could, we could all be Boy Scouts without Jesus, right? But I'm not interested in being a Boy Scout without, without Jesus. I want to have a burning heart. I want to obey him at every level. Everything that he has for me, I want to walk that out, okay? And not just half-heartedly. I want to walk it out with zeal and intentionality. So when we pray to be strengthened in our inner man, that's what we're praying for, Okay? So Romans 1 through 3, you'll see it's similar in structure. We have our crisis of sin, Romans 1 through 3. Romans 3 through 5, we have our new identity. Romans 6 through 8, we have our responsibility, okay? Again, the same thing in Matthew 5, uh, or you could say it's Sermon on the Mount. So Matthew 5, 3 through 11, it's our internal transformation. The Beatitudes is Jesus explaining. He's like, this is what my heart looks like. This is how my heart operates and I want your heart to operate in the same way. And he's inviting us to it and empowering us to do it. 
So it takes God to love God. We know that, right? So when we pray to be strengthened, we know that in and of ourselves and in our own will and strength, we don't have the power to do the thing Jesus is asking us to do, right? So he's going to empower us to do it. He never, 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 ever, ever one time in your Bible are you exhorted to do something that the Holy Spirit isn't going to help you do, okay? We never do it separate from a relationship with him. So Matthew 5 11 through uh, 5 through 11, internal transformation, or you could say identity. Matthew 5, 21 through 7 uh, is the responsibility of things that we need to resist. Or not, let, me, let me just say it different. Uh, Matthew 6 are sins that we resist. Matthew, uh, part of Matthew 6 and 7 are spiritual disciplines that we engage in. Okay, then the, the end of Matthew 7 is how to uh, work with each other in relational tension, right? So Jesus is giving us the identity piece, and then he gives us the practical ways to walk that out. And he uses the rest of the Sermon on the Mount to say, here's how you practically apply the Beatitudes. So oftentimes the mistake that we make is you read the Beatitudes and you're like, that's, that's a cool poem. Those make, those, those make me feel good. And we don't mind them being on our, on our walls in our bathrooms, Right? And we don't mind them being in Hallmark cards and Christmas cards. Blessed are the peacemakers, right? And so, but the reality is Jesus says, I want that in your heart. That needs to be your reality. This is how you're going to operate. Because it says in Matthew chapter 4, he went about preaching the kingdom. Then you get Matthew chapter 5. Now he's going to tell us this is what a kingdom citizen looks like. Okay? All right, so Paul, he splits the letter. I covered this already. He splits the letter of Ephesians in half. We have new identity. Then we have responsibility. We have, we, we have to be able to take on both. And a lot of times we get out of balance because many of us, we really like the new identity piece, but then any portion of bringing in responsibility seems like legalism. Or we really like the, I, I know people really like the responsibility piece, but are really they don't value or don't put a high priority on the identity piece. So it's all about behavior modification. And I want to say, we resist behavior modification at every level. We want to walk empowered by the Spirit, inspired by the Spirit, to obey the, the Word of God, and to obey the Spirit so that we live empowered lives. Okay? But Mike Bickle says it like this. He's like, people with a sin problem actually, yes, they have a sin problem, but they have a bigger problem. They have a vision problem. They don't know where Jesus is taking them. So they don't, they don't see the route for overcoming. Okay? All right, so Ephesians. In Ephesians 3, Paul's going to transition from our identity into our responsibility. And the way that he transitions is he puts out a powerful prayer in Ephesians chapter 3, 16 through 19. This is one of 40 apostolic prayers, um, just, meaning, just meaning any prayer that's in your Bible that, it, that was either written by one of the apostles or, or, Jesus, or is said by Jesus. They're apostolic prayers. So they're really informative for our prayer life. Um, they're incredibly positive. Uh, they, you'll find they typically don't ask to be delivered of circumstances. They typically ask to endure circumstances. Okay? And so this is, this is what we mean by being strengthened in our inner man is we're not trying to avoid inconveniences in our life. As believers, we learn to work through them. Okay? So Ephesians 3, 16 through 19. It says, According to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Let's just say that together. According to the riches of, your, of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power in his spirit in your inner being. Uh, some translations say your inner man. Now, I just want to point out, I'm not going to cover this, but I want to point out Paul's line of thinking. Peter does the same thing in Second Peter, is that we don't just by default receive, because we have the Holy Spirit, everything that the Holy Spirit has for us. What I'm saying is this, is if we want something, we actually have to engage the Spirit and ask for it. We have not because we ask not. And I don't want to live in this delusion of, well, because I have the Holy Spirit, everything in my life is just going to work out. We have to engage him at every level. This is done in relationship. This isn't done with me just living my life however I want, and then the Holy Spirit bumps up against me once in a while and kind of like a, 
like bumper bowling. You know, like, hey, you got me, you got me there, right? It doesn't need to be that way. We want to engage him at every level. So Paul adds, so that. So that. So this next component doesn't happen without us praying the first component. And it's that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, right? And we all believe that. We believe the Holy Spirit already is dwelling in our hearts through faith. So what is Paul actually saying here? Is he saying we have to receive Christ again? Do we have to receive the Holy Spirit again? I don't think that's what he's saying. He's saying there's a greater measure for you to walk out if you ask for it. There's a greater measure of faith. Then he says, again, that you. So you don't get the next thing until you're praying for the first thing, which is what? To be strengthened in our inner man. Okay? That you would be rooted and grounded in love and may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Meaning this, there is more love for us to walk out and express than what we've ever walked in. There's a, there's a deeper measure of love for us available. Always. It's infinite. We are not going to ever exhaust that. So whatever intellectual agreement I have with the scriptures in love, because of my own mind, it's deficient. There is more. There is more. Okay? Then he finishes it with another, that you, right? Part number four, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. So what's he talking about here? Because I thought I had the Holy Spirit, and I didn't think I got part of the Holy Spirit. I thought I got the whole Holy Spirit. So what is the deal? And the issue is he's saying there is another measure. Yes, you have the Holy Spirit, but what is your experience? Do you want to walk in the fullness of everything the Holy Spirit has for you, or do you want to have it be short-circuited by living your life for yourself? Do you want to be strengthened in your, in your inner man, or do you want to just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and do it on your own? Right? There's a fullness. There's more for us. Four parts to that prayer. I, I pray that prayer. You can, if, I'm not, like, excellent at prayer. I'll just be honest. Like, when I start praying, I'm like, okay, first sentence sounded right. Second sentence kind of petered off a little. Third sentence, meh. Okay? And I know some people, like Samantha Logan, she gets up and prays. The Holy Spirit rips the roof off, off the place. And I'm like, I am deficient in my prayer life. Right? So some of us just, we're, we're just, we're better at articulating our prayers. But I want to say this. Use the apostolic prayers. Just steal them. I walk my, my pathway in the front of my house and I just open my Bible to an apostolic prayer and I just start praying it right out of the word and then I'll add my own little pieces into it. So if you say, no, nah, I don't do the prayer thing. I'm not good at prayer. It always sounds stupid. I don't like the sound of my own voice. Skip all that. Open the word. Declare it over your life. Insert your personal pieces and there'll be power on your life. <clears throat> so because Paul's transitioning to our responsibility, it's just natural to pray for strength. We're not, again, we're not leaning on our own understanding. Um, so to be strengthened in our inner man, there's a lot of places in the Bible that we can go that are examples of being strengthened in our inner man. I believe the clearest is the eight Beatitudes because Jesus is inviting us to become like him. He's actually showing us the blueprint of his own heart and saying, this is actually how I operate and I just want to pull you in on that. So oftentimes the epistles... Uh, in all honesty, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to make, what I'm trying to do is make the Bible a little bit more simple. It's not always simple, but the epistles, just meaning the other books in the New Testament, um, they're oftentimes referencing Matthew 5 through 8. So if you get a grasp on Matthew 5 through 8, you're going to have a really good idea of what Paul, Peter, John, and James are talking about um, because those truths are all being spoken within the Sermon on the Mount. And so they're just borrowing Jesus' information. That's the hub. So you take Matthew, or Matthew, uh, the book of Matthew, it, it divides up into five main sections. And the first main section, at the end of each section, is a big teaching by Jesus. So the first main section, and then you get Sermon on the Mount. The first big teaching in the New Testament by Jesus. And the first words that he says are, blessed are the poor in spirit. And then he speaks the Beatitudes, and then he tells us how to practically walk them out. It's not by accident. It is of the highest order. This teaching is incredibly transformational. Not my teaching, Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm doing this my best in weakness and is to the best that I understand it. And so there is more. 
there is more. There, I, there is so much to be said about this. And I'm, I'm just inviting you or challenging you to go after it. Don't assume that it's meant to be uh, a poem on your wall or a part of a Hallmark card. And it's like, well, it's really nice that Jesus said that really nice and comforting thing. It is deep. We are going to glory in it in the presence of Jesus for all of eternity. It goes deep. I just want to say this. So I, I, I spoke a similar teaching in 2020 on the Sermon on the Mount, but I front-loaded it really heavy as to why uh, the Beatitudes are not legalism. Uh, and I'm not going to go into any of that. If you're interested in the defense against legalism, because that's the big word people use when Bible verses make them uncomfortable is le- legalism, and then they don't have to, they're not responsible to them. And I'm just going to tell you, don't be bullied by the word legalism. You just can't earn your salvation, and you can't earn the love of God. Okay, so the eight beatitudes, they're not laws and rules that like strengthen our salvation or weaken our salvation if we fail. This is an invitation to walking in relationship uh, with Jesus and the Holy Spirit. So never, I mean, if if at any point in time today you walk out of this room and you heard, I have to follow eight rules, you've missed it. You've missed what I've been saying, okay? I want to make really, really clear. We are going to, we are going to adopt the eight beatitudes we're going to have success in the eight beatitudes. We're going to fail in the eight beatitudes, and we're going to have, and there's going to be mercy for us. Okay. So he's not he's not challenging us to become better people. Jesus is not challenging us to become better people or the best versions of ourselves. Okay. This isn't like a this isn't like a worldly self help thing. This is these are the words of Jesus. Think about how many self-help books are out there. People read them. There's like eight or nine points in them. People are like, oh, these eight or nine points, they're amazing. I love these eight or nine points. I'm going to do them. One, two, three, four, five. Never one time do they say it's legalism. They just say it's awesome, right? But then Jesus opens up the New Testament with eight life things, and he's like, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. There's more than eight. There's four more in Luke. I'm not going to cover those. But the point being is is that we just got to look at them and say, this is beautiful. This is wonderful. This is the way that a life is meant to be lived. Okay? So before I go to any self-help, I go to the way that Jesus instructs me on how to live my life. All right. So he starts off. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. It says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Um, so I'm just going to summarize these, and I need, I guess, the main point that I want to make is these are so much deeper than anything that I can explain, and they're so much more available to us in the place of prayer. So blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So this is resisting self-sufficiency. We do this the day that we get saved. We say, I actually can't do it anymore, and I need Jesus to step in in my life and to empower me because I'm completely incapable um, I'm, I'm, I'm incapable of putting uh, power even on my own salvation. There's nothing in and of myself that I can do to be saved, okay? So we resist self-sufficiency related to obedience, money, anointing, and personal woundedness. Uh, we relinquish self-sufficiency at the point of salvation. I just said that. But then we continue to do this. See, it sounds weird because you're like, wait, we have Jesus. Isn't everything awesome? Why would I be poor in spirit? I have all things in Christ, right? So it seems like a paradox or a contradiction, but it's not because it's an attitude of the heart, um, which is the embracing of humility where I never get to the point where it's like, I've got this now. I know what poor in spirit is. I'm doing it perfectly. Check. And then we move on. No, that's not how this works. So the Lord is going to teach us to rely on him instead of our own efforts, and that's all the day of our lives. You can see also Matthew eleven twenty nine, John five nineteen, And again, because we're being, we're being invited, so how is this like Jesus, right? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the Son of Man can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Jesus didn't ever say, You know what? I got my own plan, Father. I'm going to do my own thing now. Never. It's always whatever I see the Father doing, and we do likewise to say whatever we see the Spirit doing, that's what we're going to do, right? Amen? All right, second beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, right? These first two are weird. You're like, wait, what a minute. I don't like this. Poor in spirit, mourning? This doesn't sound like an amazing experience to me. 
Jesus, you need to preach Jesus better, right? <laughs> Blessed are the, those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, I just want to say this. This is not an encouragement to meaningless sadness or a low self-view. Jesus is never asking us to, like, look internally and then be sad about our own life and state of affairs, right? So mourning is a broader concept uh, relating to being satisfied or dissatisfied with the way things are, okay? I, I actually use the word, instead of mourning, I, uh, I use uh, a sober evaluation, okay? We're, we soberly evaluate. There are, there's a time for joy, there's a time for sadness, right? And the Christian has a sober enough and clear enough mind to know when is the appropriate time to do either one of those things, okay? Uh, the Christian does not attempt to prop up his or her life with comfort and self-indulgence, okay? And, and here's why. Because we soberly evaluate our life and carefully weigh how we live it, okay? Um, so if, uh, an example is like, you know, if somebody passes away, you don't like invite a clown and a comedian to the funeral and say, entertain us. It's not sensitive to the scenario and the situation. It's inappropriate, right? And so... This is a broader concept that has to do with our worldview and how we, how we think of the world and our place in it, okay? So, the, so we soberly, sober, no, I said that. Uh, we, with death and the judgment seat of Christ in view, so that's what we're, we understand. Now that we are believers, we have death and the judgment seat of Christ in view. Meaning this, as a believer, you've got 70, 80, 90 years, right? If the Lord gives that to you, so when I look at my own life, I think of it in these terms. In 2070, I'll be gone. If I'm not gone, I'll be like really close to being gone, right? So you work your way backward. If, that, if I'm going to live a long life, and that's by, by the grace of God, if I'm going to live a long life, I'm going to work my way back. I'm going to think of that day first and work my way back to this way and say everything that I do between now and then has to be in Christ. The moment is urgent so I'm not going to self-indulge. I'm not going to self-medicate with drunkenness, carousing, drugs, things like that, right? Because that's what the world does. We appropriately mourn the situation because we soberly assessed it. The world doesn't do that. The unbeliever says, you know what? I'm avoiding the reality of my own finitude and my own death, and I'm going to I'm going to self-medicate, and I'm going to give myself over to drunkenness, parties, whatever you, whatever you want to call it, right? You, you can, the point is, is the motto becomes, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, right? So get the most you can in your flesh out of this life. There is no mourning. It's not a sober evaluation. They do not consider their eternity. So the main point is, because of death, or you could say the curse, we live a life with urgency and commitment to Jesus. We respond to Christ and urge others to respond as well. The worst advice anybody can ever give you is, you've got time. Says who? The Bible says to count your days, right? So you, you, the reason you, you count your days is because it's appointed once for man to die and then the judgment. And when I stand in front of Jesus... I don't want there to be presumption in my mind and in my heart that I was somebody that I wasn't, that I did things that I actually didn't do, and that somehow, generically, I'm going to receive, well done, good and faithful servant. That's not how, that's not how Paul testifies to the judgment seat of Christ. Now, the judgment seat of Christ is an amazing thing, and we're meant to get rewards on that day, but Paul says you could actually suffer loss of reward on that day, and it's related to presumption in our heart thinking that we're doing something that we're actually not doing. It's even, it's even easy to be deceived, and because my friends are do it, doing it, I'm convinced that I'm doing it. I don't care that my friends have a robust prayer life. If I don't have one, I don't care that my friends have a, a robust life. No, I do care, but it's not because they have a robust life in the Word that I have a robust life in the Word. The people you hang out with will help set the bar, but it does, it doesn't, you're not a part of it until you're actually doing it, right? Second yeah. yeah. Corinthians 7.10, says, For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. 
And the penalty of sin is, is always death. Now, in the ultimate sense, we all die. That is the penalty of sin. But it, the penalty of sin is also um, our finances crumble. Relational situations crumble, right? When we live in that perpetual sin in that self-medicating way, things keep, it's like, oh, doing good. Things break back down. That's what sin does. It brings death to all situations. And that's why worldly grief, it produces death. All right, blessed are the meek. Please understand what I'm saying. This, Jesus is just telling us how he operates. He's telling us how he operates, how him and the Father operate, how the Holy Spirit operates. He's empowering us to do these things. Right? This is why we're transformed by the renewing of our mind. We're not transformed by the, renew, by the well, I just had good feelings today and then tomorrow I have bad feelings. We actually have to renew our mind according to the word of God and what it says. Right? This is a different way of thinking. The world does not think this way. The world would not find benefit in this. Okay? So blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. So meekness, it accepts that God's dealings with us are always good. They're always good. Meekness accepts that the Lord's discipline, we accept the Lord's discipline in meekness while resisting, this is the big part, complaining and grumbling. Because his dealings with us are always good, right? Even if another brother is giving us a hard time, and would be like, oh, man, that brother, man, he just always gives me a hard time. Like, I don't know. And then you go tell so-and-so, and then so-and-so's like, yeah, that brother is like that. And then it's like it just fuels this thing in us for self-defense and exp- uh, the lust to be understood. And the Lord says, if you can overcome the grumbling and complaining, I will reward your heart. You'll burn for me on a deeper level. You'll feel my love at a greater capacity, and you'll operate in discipleship and evangelism in a really powerful way. So it's the power to resist defensiveness and retaliation towards those who hurt us and bother us. It's recognizing, this is a big one, this is fun, recognizing our time, money, and possession are the Lord's. And he uses them as he pleases. We talk about giving 10%. It's all his. All 100% is his. I don't like give the 10 and be like, this 90, I get whatever I want. Lord's like, one, there's not going to be any, if you do whatever you want, there won't be any power on it. Right? He uses our possessions as he pleases. Now, meekness is not weakness. It's power under restraint. Okay? And I've seen, I've seen this a lot of times. You know, I, I lead a Bible study, and people come, people go. And you get just people that are different places in their lives. And they come in, and they've got sin in their life. And, um, and then you got other people who are walking in complete victory. And, you know, the person with sin in their life, they're, like, just starting to get comfortable enough to, like, confess it. Like, I can con- it's safe to be in this space to confess this sin, right? And, and that is where you want to get. And, and the objective or the goal for the group isn't to be like, I have 19 Bible verses that will free you from that sin, and here's how, here's how it goes. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and then let me speak 19 words of wisdom in you. It's to hear the person, to mourn with them, to walk with them. We will have so much more, uh, there will be so much more power and blessing on helping people overcome sin if we walk through their sin with them rather than try to fix them in one second. The one second Bible smash thing never works on people. Never. I mean, you might get one out of a hundred that it works on. But if we're committed to walking through it with people, I, can, I, I almost see it from week one to week three. People start, right, they start breaking free. They're like, oh, I'm in a place I can trust. I'm in a place I can feel the Holy Spirit. My mind is being renewed according to the word. And now that thing is starting to break off. And so if we can be patient with each other and not crush one another, what I'm saying is, is meekness, not having to have the answer in that moment every single time, even though we know it and the answer is the truth, it's humility. It's bringing them along, right? That's the heart of discipleship. I don't care who somebody is today. I'm thinking about who they're going to be a year from now, three years from now, five years from now. I see people so wrapped up in sin. I'm like, that dude's a preacher. That dude's an evangelist. 
He's got power in his life to do this and that. And I look at them through that lens, and I'm not so focused on how, how much they're failing in that moment, but who it is they're going to become. And that's how Jesus views us, right? There's much more hope in that. Now, of course, if you're sinning, just know it brings confusion and destruction. Now, I'm not making excuses for sin. I hate sin. I hate sin in my own life. I hate sin in your life. And we all want to be free of it, Right? So don't hear me saying, like, oh, give people time to, like, have fun and do, that's not what I'm saying at all, okay? So Jesus says in Luke, uh, Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. The main point is that this is ultimate self-control empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's a mildness of disposition and a gentleness of conduct, okay? Beatitude number four, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So what we feed our natural bodies, we all know this, what we feed our natural bodies, we predominantly crave. If it's a lot of sugar, a lot of coffee, whatever, 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 a lot of hot dogs, a lot of hamburgers, our bodies naturally lean into, like, this is what my diet is, and this is, when I get hungry, the first thing that comes to my mind is fill in the blank, right? So we hunger and thirst or hunger and thirst, are used here. Uh, this is why Jesus is using because they're powerful desires. We feel them thirst frequently, hunger at least four to five times a day, right? So it doesn't just go away. Like, we fill our bellies, and it's like, ah, that's settled for a couple days. No, like, <laughs> in a few hours, your body's going to be like, you need more of whatever you just put in two hours ago, okay? Likewise, our spirit man will be hungry for what we continually feed it. Jesus, and this is what he's going to do in the Sermon on the Mount, after the Beatitudes, so Beatitudes, internal, practical disciplines, right? He's going to work them out practically, the Beatitudes in our lives, how this, how this is going to look. So Jesus invites us to a life of prayer, a life of fasting, a life of worship, um, and, a, and a life of giving, and, and more things than that, right? And so these practical disciplines, stripped of the internal reality, will be a drudgery, now, I'm saying do them anyway. Like, you don't, you don't do one and then be like, oh, I'm going to get really good on this identity thing and then I'm going to start participating in the disciplines. Or I'm going to really do the disciplines really, really hard and then, like, I'll figure out the identity piece later. We do them both together, okay? They're in tandem. These create a hunger in us for, thing, for the things of God that result in transformation, okay? See also Romans 6, 12 through 14. So we've got John 4, 14. It says, But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The main point here is that this is the opposite of self-righteous acts. This isn't about doing righteous acts and then patting ourselves on the back and telling everybody how awesome we are. It's a righteousness that comes from God and changes the heart of man. Okay? <clears throat> changes to the heart of man, and there's an inner change that becomes an outward expression, okay? Beatitude number five. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, that word blessed, it means it will just go well with you. If you do these eight things, it will go well with you. And like I said, there's more than eight. We say eight because we can count them in our Bible. Jesus never at any point says, there's eight Beatitudes, and do these eight things, Right? And oftentimes, too, what ends up happening is you say yes to one beatitude. You're saying, and when I say say yes, I mean you, you bring it into your prayer life. I don't mean say like, yeah, I'm saying yes to mercy. I'm saying, no, we go to the Holy Spirit and we say, you know what? I lack mercy in my inner man, and I need to grow in this area significantly. Teach me in my relationships how to walk in mercy so that I have the fruit of the Spirit vibrantly uh, playing out in my life, okay? And so... That, that's how we do them. We don't do them by, like, making a checklist and be like, I'm, I'm going to be merciful today, so I'm going to wait till that guy's a jerk. Bam! Mercy, right? We need, to, we need to be strengthened in our inner man, right, through the prayer to walk in mercy. This becomes a dialogue with the Holy Spirit. And then we say, teach me, Holy Spirit, what does it mean to be merciful? And I always have the expectation, when you put the lens on, you put the lens on, and the Holy Spirit meets you there, okay? And here, here's what I mean. You ask 
for him to teach you mercy, you best expect that an answer is coming. It could be one week. It could be two weeks. You're gonna, it's going to start, it'll start being highlighted in the books you read. It'll start being highlighted in the word of God. It'll start being highlighted in your relationships. And then you see the benefit and you realize and you have confidence that what the Holy Spirit says he's going to do, he actually does. And it transforms our inner man. And we actually believe it to be true. And then it's worth sharing it with others. So then discipleship, evangelism, totally makes sense because what I have to offer is better than what the world has to offer them. Here's what I mean. I'm, I am going to go a little bit over, and I'm, I'm just ask for mercy uh, for that. Um, <laughs> so here's what I mean. I, about 10 years ago, I really started in a really intentional way focusing on the Sermon on the Mount and saying, Holy Spirit, teach me. Teach me what you mean by this. I don't want it to be a poem anymore that hangs on my wall. I don't want it to just be the Hallmark card kind of like ooey-gooey feeling. So I'm standing right over here in worship on a Sunday morning. I've asked the Holy Spirit. I said, I want this revelation of what does it mean to be poor in spirit. Speak to me. Speak to my inner man and strengthen me in this area. And I had been doing it for a while. So I'm just standing here. I don't remember the song. My beautiful wife was standing here leading worship. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, I get this image in my head. If you're one of my friends or you've hung out with me for more than 15 minutes, you've probably heard this story. So I apologize for hearing it the third or fourth time. But I'm standing right over here in worship. I get this image in my head. And... It's, it's a room, and it's all tattered, and there's, like, wallpaper, like, falling off the walls, and there's a hardwood floor, and it's an oak hardwood floor, and it's all scratched up and really um, kind of garbagey looking. You know, it just doesn't look good. Nothing in the room looks good. The whole thing is really dank. And so, now, two weeks before that, I, I, if you don't know, if you follow me on Facebook, you would see the pictures, or if you're my Facebook friend, uh, I've been remodeling my house. Uh, for quite a while now, so it's been going on. And uh, one day, my oldest son, Rafa, he walks by me while I'm like working on something, and he says, uh, "What are you? Why are you doing this? Why are we working on the house? Why are we making it look this way?" And I said, "Well, you know, here's my thinking. Um, I want. I'm thinking of you, me, mom, and your brothers making memories in this room." And I want this room to be really comfortable and a place that we really enjoy being. And when we're here, it's just, it's really nice. And it's really conducive to the family and our relationship and us growing together as a family. He's like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Okay. And then he took his little six-year-old body and moved on. And so I'm standing right here. I don't know if he was six. He might have been a little bit younger. Um, But I'm standing right here two weeks later in worship. And I'm asking the Lord for this revelation of, of, of what it means to be poor in spirit. And so in the middle of that room, there's like a well. Um, and the room's not large. It's maybe like 10 by 10, maybe 15 by 15. And uh, I look at the well, and I just felt the Holy Spirit impress upon me. He's like, this room represents the conversation that you want to have with me in regards to porn spirit. He says, the reason that it's tattered and it's broken up and it, and it doesn't look like a desirable place to be, he says, because you're not willing to come into this room and remodel it because you don't want to have this conversation. And so I, I look at the well, and I'm like, well, what's... The, and so I'm asking the Holy Spirit. All this is happening during worship. And usually these things, when they get impressed on me, it's like a five-second thing. It's, this isn't like a 15-minute vision where I got translated or anything like that. Um, I was like, what does the well represent? And he's like, look down. And I looked down into the well, and it was like infinite. And I knew there was water in it, but it was so dark. And because a lot of times, this particular beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, it brings you to places of pain in your life where you have to um, overcome some history in order to walk out your potential, right? So I look down into the well, and he says, this, this well represents how deep this conversation is. He's like, I'm willing to have this conversation with you anytime, anytime you want to. You just have to be willing to come into the room. And so that's got to be our expectation. When we say, Holy Spirit, teach me, I'm not expecting to have an intellectual agreement with a couple of words on a page in my Bible. Though I like that. It starts with the intellectual agreement. But it's got to go to the place where we're communicating and communicating with the Holy Spirit, with Jesus, and loving him in the process and allowing him to love us back. Right? So blessed are those who are merciful, 
So to show mercy, to show mercy, someone has to fail or disappoint us, right? So this makes it really difficult. Uh, to be merciful means that we, re- we relieve people from pressure when they fail. This is a completely different way of living from the world, right? I mean, even with my own kids, I struggle. They fail. And this is the awesome thing about having kids is typically you're, you're circling the same wagon over and over and over again. And you're reiterating the same things over and over and over again. And I feel like the Lord has designed it that way. He's like, look at all of the opportunities I'm giving you for mercy. This is an area you can grow in, and I'm using your children as a canvas to grow in this space, right? So mercy doesn't take, doesn't ask accusatory questions or make accusatory statements, right? Why do you always do this? Or you always do this, right? You always statements are like poison to relationships. To show mercy, one remains at peace with someone as they make a mess, most relational conflicts are used by the Holy Spirit as an opportunity for growth. I just kind of gave you an example with my kids there. Um, the pressure, this is, this is big. The pressure, and I, I can always tell if I have a friend who walks in self-condemnation. <clears throat> it says the pressure that we put on people in their failure, it's the same pressure that we put on ourselves when we fail. So it's always the marker. Even if you're not willing to admit it to yourself, how you treat people when they disappoint you is actually how you feel about yourself when you fail. That's why it says, blessed are the merciful, for they'll sh- they will receive mercy. When you begin to have mercy on other people, and then you fail, you give yourself mercy. You don't go to the shame, self-condemnation, accusation place, right? Mercy is the yoke that breaks the power of anxiety over someone's life. I'm going to kind of speed through these points since we're getting to the end. So raising kids, I already talked about that. All right, so, but wisdom from above is pure, then peace-loving, it's gentle, it's compliant, it's full of mercy and good fruits. It's unwavering, and it's without pretense, right? The merciful seek to quickly forgive and help restore those who have failed to meet expectation, resisting the temptation to crush others by over-communicating the implications of their failure. So it's like, as we read these, like, we're like, I am, like, when I went, when I was making these notes, I'm like, this is super challenging, like, because it, it, Jesus is so brilliant, because he comes to the very things in our heart that are choking off so much good. He's like, I will address this, I will address this, I will address this, and it will be for your benefit, if you let me. We can go all of our days and be unmerciful, and be in the grace of God, and be saved, and stand at the judgment seat, and and be just fine. But there is more for us in this life. And we are rewarded for it at the judgment seat of Christ. And if we don't see it that way, we don't weigh it that way, we'll see it as optional. Like it doesn't really matter. My inner man doesn't really have to change. Because by the grace of God, I, I just am what I am. Right? That is not the story that Jesus has over your life. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So the pure in heart... Their desire is to be like Jesus in the smallest areas of their life and refuse to live an outward, spre- an outward expression that tells a different story from what's really happening inwardly, okay? Uh, m- meaning, I, I don't want to live with pretense. If I'm failing and I've got sin, I don't want like, my, to be with my friends like, everything's great, I'm doing great, glory to God. I want to confess it. I want to be honest. That's the place where we get free, right? Don't, we don't want to pretend to be something that we're not. I am deficient in the, in the, the Beatitudes. I, I will admit it. We all have to admit it. If there's this feeling, it's like, oh, no, I'm being exposed. It's like, praise the Lord. Yeah. You're recognizing that there's more for you, right? Yeah. We got to get into a space where we are in a community where, our, where we're so afraid to, to share our failure because we're going to think everybody's going to view us in a particular way. I'll be honest, if you get around me, I will tell you anything about my life. Why? Because I found when you bring things into the light, it brings freedom to your own life, and it brings freedom to others. This whole, like, oh, I've got to pretend this week has just gone well, because if, if, I, if it hasn't, I'm not spiritual. Wrong. Wrong. What if pretense was completely broken over our body at Dayspring? 
Meaning, meaning we actually can say things honestly and not feel like we're going to be rejected or rebuked. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. This is, peacemaker sounds nice. Like, this sounds like a good one. Like, this is going to be positive, right? This is the hardest one. This is the hardest one. Because peacemakers understand the importance of the ministry of reconciliation, which is the ministry that every one of us has received. Every one of us has received the ministry of reconciliation. So we have a responsibility to it. So what we have to end up doing is resist picking sides with people. Do you know how difficult that is? Because you resist picking sides, and then you're saying, I'm going to be a peacemaker, and you're trying to get the one person really offended to see the virtue in the other person, and you're trying to see the person that really offended the other person to see the virtue in the other person, and how do they bring their, their uh, relationship back together? And Jesus says, this is a beautiful ministry. You will be called a son of God if you embrace this ministry. But if you pick sides and you begin to slander and gossip the other sides, so much good will be cut off from your life. And I see that I've, I've, I'm like one for 15 on helping people uh, heal their marriages. It does not go well. Here's what happens. One's mad at the other. The other one's mad. You're trying to like help it all work out. And they both end up uniting in their hatred for you. <laughs> go easy. I'll just say this. Go easy on our pastors and our leaders. Because when you come and you're like, this person in the body is doing this, this, and that. Pick my side. Let's annihilate them, right? Or my wife is doing this, this, and that. Pastor Derek, pick my side, right? Let's annihilate her. Let's, let's get her into a room and get her corrected. Or my husband, whatever, right? The Lord's like, no, there's a better way. There's a better way. We're not trying to win our arguments. We're trying to win people over. And if we can't have peace amongst ourselves, what are we inviting people into? Hey, yeah, come on, be a part of my dysfunctional church. No, we don't have to live in that dysfunction. We can be confident that each one of us can be skilled in being peacemakers. <laughs> all right, 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 19, all of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. This is why we embrace it. We didn't deserve it. And he reconciled us to him. And he gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the, word to himself, the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. You will lack the skill of bringing unbelievers into the body of Christ if you don't have the skill of being a peacemaker within the body of Christ. Peacemakers see the value of people in relationships and help others find the value in the middle of relational tension. Final beatitude, and then we're going to do an activation. Blessed are the persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So, essentially, what Jesus is saying is like, those first seven things that I just taught, you're going to do them, and it's going to be great for you. Your heart is going to explode with love for me and with power and with confidence. But people around you are not going to like it because it's going to challenge the very fabric of the way they live, both unbelievers and believers. I Honestly, I have a harder time with believers and promoting these truths than I do with unbelievers. You can get an unbeliever in a room and talk about these things. They're like, that sounds awesome. I want to get my heart free. You, you tell believers and they're like, legalism. Jesus says we're free. We don't need any of that. It's like, at no point in time am I going to take a, a, a teaching of Jesus and, and presume that I know that we can just write it off, right? And Jesus actually is going to say this in Matthew 5.19. So the main point is we respond to mistreatment and persecution with grace because our commitment to inward transformation and outward obedience is inspired and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Matthew 5.19, or let's say Matthew 5.44, it says, but I tell you this, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. There's tons of Bible verses on that particular point. Now, Matthew 5.19, Jesus is going to give us the sober evaluation 
of how we are, the sobering way of how we are meant to view these Beatitudes. And he says, therefore, this is right after the Beatitudes. Preaches the Beatitudes, then he says, yeah, I'm not getting rid of the law. I'm actually here to fulfill it. And so by fulfilling it, what I'm going to do is I'm going to make the law a reality in your heart. That's why I'm explaining the Beatitudes, because this is going to be your new internal reality. And therefore, whoever relaxes on one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. He doesn't say they'll be out. He just said, you'll be in, but you will be least. But whoever does them and teaches them, he will be called great. He'll be called great. Jesus, right here, self-help book, How to Live a Life of Greatness. Eight blessings that we can live in. He will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. All right, so let's all stand. Please. Derek is really te- has been really teaching me those those kind words of like, thank you, and please, and would you, instead of like telling people to do stuff, ask them to do it. <clears throat> so here's what I want to do. We're just going to do an activation. I'll be honest, I can't focus on, my brain isn't big enough to focus on all eight Beatitudes at the same time, okay? And I'm assuming that yours probably isn't either. So I always just pick the one that I feel like the Holy Spirit is highlighting in me in a particular season. And I know that by by him highlighting the one, I'm gonna, I'm, there's going to be the potential for the other ones to start working themselves out naturally, okay? So let's just pick one. Just take three, four, five seconds. Pick one. And then let's just pray this prayer. Let's put our hands out. Ephesians 3.16. Because if we're going to do Ephesians 4 through 6, we're going to need to be strengthened in our inner man. There's no hope for Ephesians 4 through 6 without being strengthened in our inner man in this way. So Father, let's do do it together. Father, according to the riches of your glory, grant me to be strengthened. How about this? We'll start over. (laughs) I'll say it, then you say it, okay? Father, according to the riches of your glory, Grant me to be strengthened with power through your spirit in my inner man. Strengthen me and give me wisdom and revelation and what it means. Insert your beatitude. I'll say it one more time. Strengthen me and give me wisdom and revelation and what it means. Thank you, Jesus.